All right, so welcome to the call, everybody. And today I'm talking with Richie Bennett, who is a psychologist who specialises in enhancing our performance. And that could be in daily life as a mother, sister, brother or farmer. And he also works with elite athletes who may be touring the world with Olympics or particularly with uh, surfing competitions with professional surfers. So it's really great to be talking with you, Richie, and thanks for agreeing to be on the call. Thanks, Joey. Yeah. So do you want to give the listeners a little feel for who you are and how you got into mindfulness and a little bit about your journey as a performance psychologist? Yeah, I, I first began uh, my university studies in the early 90s and um, there wasn't really much within that program that was around mindfulness. It was, uh, it was very theoretically based and uh, most of the course that I did was really preparing you for further academic studies rather than uh, applied practice. And so when I finished uh, the honours, I actually went out and started practising under supervision because I wanted to actually work. And, and I looked at doing different um, applied courses to understand you know, what's actually happening with people in, in the moment uh, when they're experiencing different things. And um, at the same time, I, I discovered yoga. And uh, that was really a life-changing experience for me, discovering yoga. And, and that's really where my first, um, I guess, experiential understandings of what mindfulness is and how it could be applied for uh, cultivating human potential, for managing discomforts, as well as uh, healing experiences, uh, you know, mind, body and spirit. So that, that was really my first introduction and it was wonderful that I had that experience at the same time I was just beginning my practice as a psychologist. I started working in public mental health and there's a very strong medical model and clinical approach from psychology uh, with that. And um, so to have my experiential understandings coming through with my yoga practice, and I also discovered Reiki uh, mm-hmm. and the, uh, you know, as a healing modality, as well as uh, also a wonderful framework of metaphysical understandings of mind, body, spirit, uh, to be able to integrate that into my practice in that clinical setting. Um, was really wonderful and, and then to round it out really um, there's a, a very really really beautiful indigenous community down in the far southwest of Victoria there's a couple of um, missions and reserves down there Windermar and Gunichamar around the Haywood area and I was really fortunate to spend a lot of time uh, with the elders down there just literally going walk about mm. talking story listening to their dream time understanding the indigenous approach to health and healing and how beautiful connection to country, culture and language was in, in all that. And, and of course, uh, you know, how that can apply to the being and uh, yeah. who, who we are as a human. So I, was, I felt really blessed because I had these wonderful psych nurses and psychiatrists that had so much skill and knowledge in the medical model, which is mm-hmm. so rich and um, offers so much value for our health and healing. And then I was doing my own experiential practice through yoga and Reiki and understanding, I guess, uh, a, a spiritual and metaphysical side. Mm-hmm. And then uh, having these um, experiences with the local Indigenous people and understanding from the elders how for thousands of years they've, uh, you know, created, maintained mental health and holistic health, really, but also thrived as, as a person and as a culture for so many thousands of years. Yeah, gosh, that really um, resonates with me and where I've come from as well. So it um, gives me goosebumps, actually. But you've mentioned a few things that I want you to clarify for the listeners. Mm-hmm. So the first thing was you said when you went out, so you'd been doing your book study and your theoretical learning at uni and going to lectures, etc. Yeah. Which we all do. Yeah. And then you get out into the world and you're sitting 
across from a, a patient or a client yeah. and you're thinking, how do I get into their moment? That was something you said. And do you want to talk a little bit about how mindfulness is quite unique for getting us into those moments and then talk about what it means to be experientially learning? Some people might not necessarily know what that experiential concept is. So do you want to build on that? Yeah, sure, Joe. The first call out I ever had at uh, Portland Psychiatric Service was uh, a suicide attempt, a failed attempt, and it was in the emergency unit at Portland-based hospital and a fellow had overdosed. And I'd never been in an experience like that before, and in fact, I'd never really been around anyone with mental health issues, you know. Mm. Um, so I was with, you know, one of the senior psychiatric nurses, and uh, we went along, and, and for me, in that clinical setting and that emergency setting, the experience of yoga and uh, knowing what our piece is inside through practicing yoga was something that I was looking for even in that emergency department space is, you know, these people are very far from their natural peaceful state. What could I do even if I didn't know really what to say? So what could I even do in terms of my posture, my expression and uh, my sense of connection with the, the, that could actually cultivate that. And, and this young man, his fiancée was in the chair in tears and that kind of thing. And so the, the psychiatric nurse spent more time managing what was going on with, with the young person, the, with the man that had had the self-harm attempt. And so I just connected uh, with the fiancée. And, and it was really, um, you know, about emanating that peaceful state, that giving that assurance even without words that this will be okay and this is something that you as a, as a partner and you as a couple can move through mm -hmm. and there's support here and it's available to access uh, just like when you go to a yoga class there's a wonderful teacher there that's available to access and you're doing your own asanas and your inner work but isn't it great to have some guidance and uh, yeah. have, have a yoga teacher that's very open so you feel like you can access and, and uh, I ended up being the case manager for that client for the next you know six nine months and they recovered really well and, um, yeah, the couple got married and uh, it was a really good outcome. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I think it's really nice to feel that there's people that can hold you in that vulnerable space mm. and let you know that actually it's okay to feel really crappy right now and yeah. it's okay to feel that your life is falling apart and your heart's falling out of yeah. your body and your brain's melting and I'm going to sit beside you and one day... It, things will change and it will feel different and I'll still be beside you. Yeah, that's, so that's right. And that, that power of presence, is uh, it really is tangible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, probably the best supervisor I've ever had as a psychologist was my Labrador when I was quite young. <laughs> and uh, people that are listening might have seen that movie, Marley and Me. Mm -hmm. And when the couple have just realised that um, the girls had a miscarriage, you know, the, the, the husband had just is lost for words. He knows his partner's absolutely in pain mm -hmm. on every level and it's the dog that comes over and places his head on uh, yeah. her lap. And, and it's just that presence and that touch. And, um, you know, it, it actually, it's got a deeper sense of trust and knowing that you can live through this and that you'll be okay. Because quite often when we're in the helping professions, we tend to want to help. <laughs> and, and, and Yeah, that, that's right. But really my, my view of health and healing is that um, as a psychologist, I simply have some knowledge, understanding, some tools that I can impart and share and teach people. And that's to augment their own absolutely wonderful healing abilities on every level, physical, Beautiful. mental, emotional and spiritual. So um, I'm just someone who can offer a service that might augment that and they're very much in command and choosing, well, 
who am I going to draw from in terms of medical and psychology and all the specialities that are available to me to cultivate my own healing? Yeah, the group input. Yeah. Multidisciplinary. Yeah. So if I mean, some... I was just going to ask you about someone who might be wanting to enhance their natural talents. So some of your clients come in and they actually have pretty good health or exceptional health because they're professional athletes. Yeah. How do you use this moment-to-moment experience of holding someone and journeying together with someone to actually boost them up? Well, with, with elite performers, the first thing I do is understand who they are as a human, mm. you know, because... We're a human being, 24-7, 365, and even if you're an Olympian, Paralympian, world, on a world title campaign, whatever your sport or your, your high-end elite pursuit might be, there are moments and phases that you have each day or each week that, that you're in. But who you are as a human is really important. So I always have an interview with beginning with people to understand who they are and the space that they live in, the people and uh, the beings that are important to them in that space. Because a happy, healthy human is going to be a happy, healthy performer. And performance psychology is really, it's very, really very fine and, and uh, specialised based on the performance domain and what the demands might be on all the levels, mm-hmm. the internal demands, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and then, of course, the demands of the actual performance space, whether it's individual or team sport. Mm-hmm. So for me, a foundation of psychology is quality of thoughts, feelings, and behaviour or actions, and mm-hmm. in the sports scene, that's your performance. And then it's also about quality of relationships, so how we think and feel about about ourself, our self-love, mm-hmm. and then how we think and feel about the world around. That can be people or the settings we find ourselves in, like a performance setting. So that's always a starting point to cultivate people's mindfulness or awareness of, well, where am I at with this self-love mm-hmm. and where am I at? Because if, if, if I love myself, I'm going to know all my potentials and I'm going to absolutely thrive and, and uh, want to utilise all of them because I'm aware and I believe in them. Uh, if there's some elements of self-doubt within me, if there's elements of fear within me or other kind of psychological uh, experiences that we can have, which in a performance setting can end up being a bit of an obstacle, uh, well, then the first thing we need to do is be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And just like motor patterns of movement, we have psychological patterns of thought and thinking style and beliefs. So that's when it can get into, I guess, that level of uh, awareness or is it the belief that's driving this style of thought in the moment when the intensity is really high. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it can be it can be something that um, you, you, you really look at it at a base level, the human, and then, well, then look at well, what's the actual performance and what psychological uh, needs and demands are you meeting here and want to optimise here. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm working with patients, I'll, I'll sit with them and we'll actually talk about, well, what sort of person would you like to be in a perfect situation mm. or an ideal world? If we put your symptoms beside and just, just had them to the left for a moment, yeah. you know, what things would you be wanting to, doing, to be doing or yeah. achieving or participating in? And then, yeah, using mindfulness to workshop and have strategies and plans about getting closer to those goals and potentially taking the fears, the doubts and the symptoms with us. Yeah. So they're, they're coming along for the ride. Yeah. So it's this sense of being curious and open and including maybe our difficult symptoms or fears or doubts in the thriving process. Yeah. So they're not holding us back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the mind works best when we keep things simple. Yeah. And, and the funny irony is that whatever we're doing, whether we're parenting, whether we're teaching a class as a teacher, whether we're delivering our role professionally or whether we're delivering our personal best performance or our gold medal performance, 
in that moment, in the delivery, it feels so simple. I mean, flow is one of the psychological experiences yeah. people commonly share about. So for me, that's quite logical to go, well, what about the process? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a warning bell. And this is where mindfulness is really beautiful because when we're aware that, hang on, this doesn't feel simple, it's starting to become complex. And well, what's the reason for that on a psychological level? For example, I'm thinking too much, I'm overthinking, my decision making is too slow because I'm considering too many things in this Doubts. performance moment, things like that. It's like it's a really good example of how mindfulness can help the athlete on a psychological level because you're aware of, hang on, I've gone off that center line process of things being quite simple on a focus feeling mm. uh, level and then when you've done the work with the physical you know the skill development the physical development that's required for that performance the body it's so beautiful it's purpose-built to manifest the mm-hmm. love and intentions of the mind the love and intentions of the heart too so it will just respond and it has its own intelligence to adjust even without conscious command from the mm-hmm. mind as well so that's when things really are simple and we're in flow with mind, body, breath and, yep. you know, the, the love of what we're doing in our performance. Yeah, the mind-body connection. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. always good to remember how much genius, really, and intellect and knowledge the actual body holds. Yeah, yeah, and, genius um, is definitely the word. <laughs> yeah, I notice um, a lot of the patients and clients I see have even things like irritable bowel syndrome mm. and sleeping upset and it's like there's this underlying sense of I'm not safe and things aren't quite right and yeah. why am I dizzy and why is there this sound in my head? And it's this sense that the body is actually giving them information and the body's saying, I'm nervous, I'm worried, what's going on? Yeah. And so then I'll often use mindfulness skills to help people drop into the body and talk with it and bring in that self-support and self-soothing. So do you want to share a little bit about what you've seen in terms of managing daily anxieties and this mind-body connection and how that, how that happens for you as a psychologist in clinic? Yeah, yeah the, the body really is a divine messenger. I mean, body and mind are divine messengers about each other and, and, mm-hmm. and the world around. And, um, you know, to, to take, a, say, an athletic experience and, and look at it in a community setting, when an athlete has an injury and they're in that return-to-play experience, the fear and doubt that can come back in because there's all these messages of pain mm. and signals from the body. So, and, and what that does is it activates our fight or flight response, mm-hmm. which is where we can get a bit tense and the adrenaline comes up and the thoughts can race a little more and it can feel like mind and body are actually separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's even more or there's even less chance of people having a successful performance. Plus when you're tense, that's when uh, you're probably more injury prone. Mm-hmm. So in, in, a, in a general setting, I mean, life is a performance, but in, in a general setting, that anxiety between mind and body, it's a little bit like when the messages from the body are things like pain or irritation, like chronic pain or, or ir- irritation from something like tinnitus or some experience like that. It can feel like, like if you imagine that if that was a person in a room that was constantly poking you mm. or making a noise that was uncomfortable for you, you'd eventually feel threatened and want to get out of that situation. So people find themselves where in a situation where they want to get out of their body and it's very uncomfortable. They feel threatened even by being in, in that space. Mm. And it, it, um, it has lots of different effects on the neurological level and, and serotonin being released and all these really good natural chemicals that we have in our body to help us heal because when fight or flight is switched on, immune function switches off, 
and uh, you know we're more in a stress response rather than a, a natural state or recovery healing response. Yeah, it's good sometimes to repeat that. So what Richie just said was when we're in the fight, flight or freeze response, it's because the body's trying to protect itself. It's a mm. natural stress response mm. and it's actually really helpful. So if you have that, then you know you're healthy. But during those moments, the body stops repairing. So it, mm. it tones down sort of the digestive processes and the natural skin repair and hormonal yeah. balancing functions just temporarily. And I think sometimes it's good to learn when the fight flight's active and to have strategies to tone it down and come back to repair. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, an athlete or anyone who does something that's relatively active or exciting, <laughs> you are consciously playing with fight or flight because mm. as you shared it's a very natural beautiful part of our system for me it's just an activation system mm -hmm. it's a label if you want to label it as something that is your anxiety system or your fear system for me it's purely an activation system because yeah. physiologically when you're dancing when you're excited when you're at your highest levels of elation mm -hmm. fight or flight's kicked in adrenaline's pumping and then you know there's a nice endorphin release and things like that as well yeah so um when we start to have those deeper understandings of the natural systems of the body and mind, then we feel less threatened by mm -hmm. them. You know, there's lots of fear in the unknown and there can be a lot of discomfort with feeling shaky, getting sweaty, yep. shortness of breath, yep. tight chest, tight uh, choky throat. I know those like feelings that. well, yep. Yeah, so, so of course a human's going to be quite fearful of that. But when you know that all of this is part of your sympathetic nervous system going, hey, you need some help, dude, because you're perceiving a threat here, mm -hmm. um, then your body's actually coming in on the perception of the mind that there's a threat. And if the threat's internal, like a symptom, pain, tinnitus, something like that, then uh, or injury for the athlete that's trying to recover, then uh, going into that stress or tension response is going to actually be the opposite. It's yeah. a bit like rock climbing. You know, when you're a bit stuck on the wall... Yeah, starting to fatigue, <laughs> what people tend to do is grip the wall yeah. further. But what you actually want to do is just hang out and look up and see where the next hold might be or look down and see if there's a different footing where you could go to to get yourself elevated Save your energy. the next hold. Yeah, so instead of hanging on tight, you actually want to mm. relax and move away from the wall. Mm. Obviously have at least something holding on it but so you can actually look around. Yeah. So again, when you, when you know or have a deeper understanding of these internal systems of the body and that they're built to serve you and help you, mm. then it's a little bit like the person in the room that's giving you this message. If you know that that's coming from a place of love and compassion, even if it might be a truth that's pretty blunt, yep. uh, you'll accept that and you'll go, well, okay, let's maybe yeah. I'll do it this way. You know? and, and I think a really good example of that, what I do with patients in clinics sometimes is I'll get them, if they feel comfortable, to close their eyes and just feel into the chair they're sitting in and feel mm. the body. And I'll, I'll quite straightforward ask, you know, do you feel that your legs are on fire? Is there a flood? Is there any physical real threat right now? So they're genuinely scanning for that real message, that real threat, that they need to open their eyes and they need to take action and they need to run away or they need yeah. to speak their mind. Yeah. And so really starting to question for ourselves, uh, when are these um, arousal or activation signs of the heart beating and the sweats yeah. when are they not serving us and when are they just creating noise in our head yeah. and how can we hold it lightly and then think more clearly with this wisdom side of ourselves yeah so to finish with do you have any little hot tips that you might give someone listening right now that they could try if you want to I don't know demonstrate or guide us through something that might be just a little short mindfulness uh, practice maybe or something someone could use right here today 
Yeah, certainly, Joe. One, I, I raised before experiential learning, which mm. is learning through direct experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, the beginnings of my work in sport performance was actually starting to apply the strategies I was teaching people in fear-based experiences like anxiety, panic, obsessive compulsive disorder, things like that. I was applying those strategies to myself to manage my own fear in big ways. I wanted to surf bigger and bigger ways. Mm. And far and away, one of the most important strategies, a mindfulness strategy, because it really does take the awareness to consciously step in and practice this uh, you know, with confidence, is really our breath and how we breathe. Because our body is designed to breathe certain ways to be active or to be calm and serene. Mm. And, and for me, I just look at it logically. I think if I want to be really calm and serene, then in any 24-hour period, when is someone usually at their calmest and most serene? Sleeping. Sleeping, exactly. <laughs> and sleeping is beautiful because it's a time when we're not consciously aware or guiding our breath with our mind. So the body, with its own intelligence and genius, is doing that. It's its own dance with nature while we're sleeping. But we can consciously sleep breathe while we're awake. And, of course, that's where it's cultivating parasympathetic nervous activity, which is where the relaxation response lives. That's where all those wonderful you know, processes of mm -hmm. hormone healing, all these kind of, uh, you know, this beautiful body and mind we have that can self-heal starts to come in. So in a very basic way, in the moment with the mindfulness, if you notice you're becoming tense, anxious or emotionally uncomfortable with whatever experience you're having, if you notice that your mouth breathing, you can simply shift to nostril breathing because that will regulate the flow and it will slow down the air because you can't get as much air in as quickly through the nose as the mouth. And also, if you're aware that your chest is moving a lot when you're breathing, you can be quite mindful to guide the movement of the diaphragm, just that, uh, I guess it's a muscle or it stretches across your lower ribs and it's what inflates and deflates the lungs. If you guide that movement from below, that's going to start to stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system because in a very basic way, when it's related to breathing, sympathetic nervous system neurons are all attached up high in the chest, mm -hmm. which is why the lion and the gorilla just blow up huge in their chest when there's a threat to the group or the pride. And uh, you know our parasympathetic nervous system and the hard wiring for that when it's based with breathing is below the diaphragm. So if all you uh, think about is nostrils and belly, Beautiful. then uh, you know that's going to be a simple cue to be mindful of. But if I'm a little uncomfortable even if it's a physical discomfort from pain or something that you're going to come into your natural state just like your sleep state but you're not going to fall asleep because uh, firstly you have an intention and secondly it's probably going to be a daytime so your melatonin won't have released your sleep mm. uh, so simply shifting from mouth to nostril breathing and if the nose is blocked simply creating a small and consistent opening in the lips so it's similar to the small and consistent opening of the nostrils and then, of course, being aware that, well, hang on, my upper chest is moving, my whole ribcage is moving a bit with this breath, or it's short and shallow. And what I like to do is move the, the, the drive or the movement of the breath to below. And it can still be quite low volume because you can imagine mm. this is where sometimes people can be a little confused with deep breathing. Absolutely. Well, that uses the whole lung, the whole thoracic space, so you're going to still be activating sympathetic nervous activity. That's quite activity. demanding on the body, deep breathing yeah, too. Yeah, that's, that's right. And particularly when it's through the nose. <laughs> uh, so it's okay that you allow that breath to be quite low volume and the other thing you'll notice with the stillness in the chest is that the breath seemingly bypasses upper and middle lobes of the lungs and purely goes into the lower lobes of the lungs and that's where actually all our most uh, I'll call it nutritious gas exchange actually happens for the body with the mm. oxygen it all happens in the lower lobes anyway so it just keeps the upper chest nice and still yeah. and um, something that is also helpful is your posture 
because uh, if, you, if you're going to breathe like that, you want to have a nice free and open, well-supported posture. Shoulders rolled back, nice straight spine. Whether or, even, or even laying down with your legs bent can be yeah. a nice way to do it yeah. if you need a rest. Yeah, that's right. Sitting tall or laying yeah. low. Yeah, and the other real beauty of uh, being mindful of posture and adjusting the posture to be in a calm and relaxed space is that the body far more than our words, expresses our emotional state. Mm. And so when you're quite mindful about how you move and, and position and transform the posture of your body, you'll actually create in the moment quite a tangible shift in your emotional state. The experience. And that, that's what I share a lot with athletes. We talk. There's a lot of self-talk that happens with the focus cues and everything in the mind, but I also teach the body talk, you know, how mm. you actually... Uh, reset the integrity of your posture and the biomechanics of your movement and things like that Great. and we can do that in our daily life as well yeah and another way of framing that is if you stand with confidence like you just pretend you're a really confident person and you're absolutely sure about yourself and you just embody that in your body language yeah. I often use the um character of Khaleesi out of Game of Thrones mm -hmm. she's got a beautiful head position where she lifts her chin and holds her ears back and the head's genuinely above the sitting bones. Yeah. Um, just if you pretend and you embody that posture, you may start to notice you'll start to feel a little bit more ground.